Welcome to the Ad Law Access Podcast. My name is Jeff Scurry. Today we're talking about the FTC, past, present, and future. And I'm speaking with three of our attorneys that have deep FTC experience, and they bring that experience to their practices. So I want you guys to go ahead and introduce yourselves. Hey, Jeff, this is Laura Vandruff. Hello, everyone. This is Aaron Burstein, and I'm a partner in Kelly Dry's Privacy and Information Security Practice. And I'm Jessica Rich, also at Kelly Dry. All right, so let's begin with some level setting. The FTC's activities fall into three general categories, enforcement, policy, and consumer and business education. Now, while it's important to keep an eye on all three, nothing makes companies sit up and pay attention like being the subject of an investigation or enforcement action. So let's begin by talking a little bit about how the investigative and enforcement process has traditionally worked. How do investigations begin? Well, there's no one way, Jeff, but... um Investigations can start with a complaint from a consumer. They can begin with a referral by Congress. They can begin from reporting um, in traditional media, uh, print media, from a blog post and everything in between. I would add that frequently uh, the FTC gets complaints from competitors and also uh, technologists um, who uh, have found have have made findings about problems going on in the marketplace. So, what are the major stages in an FTC investigation, and who are the players involved? Well, um, focusing on consumer protection investigations as opposed to competition investigations, the antitrust investigations, the attorneys and investigators looking at consumer protection issues will first ask the target of an investigation or sometimes third parties for information in the form of an access letter or a civil investigative demand. Um, I should note at the outset that FTC investigations are non-public and so uh, this is not a splashy event that happens on the front page of the Washington Post, but rather um, hits the desk often of, of lawyers at a company or the 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 of you know just the business itself. After the agency receives the information that it's looking for through inquiries to the business through its lawyers, if the business retains counsel. Then if it has reason, if the agency, if the FTC has reason to believe that there's been a law violation, it will pursue traditionally settlement of that law violation through what it calls a consent process. Um, And if the settlement is not resolved, then the agency can pursue litigation. Now, not every case Um, In not every investigation, I should say, does the staff have reason to believe that there's been a law violation. In fact, um, the agency has said many times that um, it closes more cases than it brings. And so the fact that the uh, FTC uh, raises questions does not mean um, that it is going to necessarily find that there's been a violation of law. Yeah, I would say that uh, the road that it takes to get from that beginning uh, and initial access request to some resolution can be long and it can follow a really wide variety of paths. And Laura hinted at some of them 
But I think that one point that's worth emphasizing is that receiving a CID and responding to it is um, not a, uh, a small event and can lead to a variety of consequences for companies, both in terms of internal resources that they need to devote to responding to, to the demand, um, external resources in the form of outside counsel, um, and then disruption to business processes and, and an obligation to retain records, for example, that are subject to the, to the CID. Um, and then there's the process of production, waiting for um, staff to review the information and, and sort of move the investigation forward. So um, it's, I, I think, just one, one consistent feature of investigations over time is that uh, they do take quite a bit of time to, to resolve, uh, even if they don't result in an enforcement action. And, I'll and have, I would just, I would just underscore exactly what you said, Laura, which is that even though it does take enormous effort to respond to a commission inquiry or CID, they don't necessarily lead to a case. So the importance of advocacy, strong, you know, uh, um, uh, knowledge of one's practices and the ability to make the arguments that are necessary to, 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 to uh, push back on a meritless, uh, what you believe is a meritless complaint is very, very important. Yeah, during the pendency of an investigation, um, having counsel experienced in FTC investigations is critical. There is not a lot of information that comes from the staff about what they're thinking um, before they have completed review of materials um, because they, they, they give consideration to everything that is submitted. And as Jessica described, um, that advocacy is critically important. All right, th- thanks for that. Now let's kind of talk about where things are today. Aaron, how is the FTC dealing with the fallout from the Supreme Court's decision in AMG, which held that the FTC could not obtain equitable monetary relief under the FTC Act? The court held that Section 13B does not authorize the FTC to obtain so-called equitable monetary relief. That is money that is in the form of uh, damages or or. Uh, something besides a civil penalty, which the FTC has to have specific authority. So what that decision did really was to take away a um, statutory authority that the FTC had relied on and asserted over many years in its consumer protection cases. Um, The way the agency is adjusting to the AMG decision falls along a couple of different paths. One is that the FTC is beginning to explore and emphasize other sources of legal authority that it could use to to obtain monetary relief. And we see this sometimes with the FTC turning to statutes that haven't always been front and center in its enforcement actions, uh, like uh, ROSCA, the Restore Online Shoppers Confidence Act, Another route is to work with other federal agencies that might have broader civil penalty authority and uh, to team up with them in order to at least obtain some um, monetary judgment or or other relief that uh, the FTC can no longer obtain on its own. 
And then a third pathway that's being discussed a lot is to consider issuing new rules or new regulations. Those rules not only allow the FTC to specify in greater detail what types of conduct are unlawful, but they also open the door to uh, more ways to uh, obtain money from defendants who uh, allegedly violate those regulations. So those are some of the ways that the FTC is looking at, at dealing with um, the, the decision in AMG. Okay. What steps has Chair Khan taken to change how staff conduct its investigation? Chair Khan has, I think, continued to pursue some of the changes that others on the commission have called for in recent years. Not all of these are, are deeply substantive, but um, I think there is a growing emphasis on an interest in pursuing individual liability um, against corporate officers rather than just against corporations themselves. Traditionally, that's been limited to a fairly specific group of FTC defendants, uh, especially in, in fraud cases or where there are relatively small companies with individuals really asserting or exercising control over their activities. So that's that's been one, one way. And I would ask Laura and Jessica if they have other changes that they're observing in practice. Well, we're seeing in, um, and we understand that there have been some changes in how invest these non-public investigations that I described at the outset are being conducted, that there is an, an emphasis on additional fact gathering, um, that more um, investigational hearings are being conducted, which are uh, effectively depositions in FTC practice, and that there is a focus on practices that could lead to things like individual liability in order to explore uh, theories that that were not pursued uh, in in prior uh, uh, chair, chairmanships. Uh, one change is change we're seeing that may be temporary due to the transition is uh, that staff is not as empowered as it has been in the past. So when you negotiate with staff, they they aren't they aren't able to respond and do the give and take in the same way they have because they feel like they have to run everything um, by the powers that be as they're still figuring out what the uh, what the rules are. What this means is it. It may be hard to to resolve issues at the staff level, at least for now, and it may require escalation to the next levels up before you can get a clear answer or resolution of whatever issue you're trying to resolve. So that's something to really be prepared for as you deal with the commission. So at a, at a practical level, how is the new tone at the top affecting FTC investigations you know, at the staff, bureau, and commission levels? So. I think that the way that this is playing out is that it it changes some of the expectations that companies have traditionally had in terms of dealing with the FTC. Uh, and Jessica alluded to that in terms of the give and take that has occurred in the past with staff that are leading the investigation. I think that it maybe to, to 
summarize it, there's some need to expect the unexpected, and there's going to be a little bit of unpredictability, maybe a different cadence to communications about the status of investigations. But I think at the same time, it also underscores the the basics of, of what has been essential to respond to FTC investigations in the past. And, and that is a good understanding of the law and um, precedent in, in the form of previous enforcement actions and being ready to advocate and make the case. Now, that might all be received differently. Uh, it might occur at, at different points in an investigation, but without that foundation, at least as a, um, a guideline for a, a, a changing commission, you know, I think uh, one, one would get lost pretty quickly. So at least having that baseline to work from and emphasizing those fundamentals, uh, I think is still a wise place to invest effort. That's right. And, and as, as I mentioned at the top, we know that, that there's only so much staff can share during an investigation about where, where they've landed or where they are in assessing materials a company submits. That's, that's doubly so now for the reasons that Jessica and Aaron described. And so having experienced counsel um, who really can understand how a how a company's facts fit in the um, in the law and the precedent, as Aaron described, um, is, is critically important today. So, looking ahead, what are some of the items we might see in the coming year? Well, this question is extremely timing because actually, we do know some of the things that the FTC is planning in the coming year only because just a few days ago, the FTC issued a statement of regulatory priorities that told us. So uh, the headlines of that are that in addition to reviewing or taking action on almost 20 rules and guides that the FTC currently uh, enforces, the FTC is planning to develop multiple new rules on what it calls surveillance and unfair methods of competition uh, and of course, the Republican Senate, the uh, commissioners are uh, not in agreement, but those are the plans that the uh, chair announced just last week. So uh, the new rules pack a whole lot of punch um, as they encompass multiple issues, each of which could be a rule by itself. The, uh, the first uh, category is rules to halt abuses stemming from surveillance-based advertising mo- business models which the FTC says could have the effect of curbing lax security practices, limiting intrusive surveillance, and ensuring that algorithmic decision-making does not result in unlawful discrimination. And the FTC also says that these practices threaten both consumers and competition, signaling that the new rule might encompass both consumer protection and competition issues. And as a second big category of rules, the FTC's announced that it's going to define certain unfair methods of competition, which could include rules related to non-compete clauses, surveillance, the right to repair, pay for delay, pharmaceutical agreements, unfair competition in online marketplaces, occupational licensing, real estate listing and brokerage, and industry-specific practices that substantially inhibit competition. So, as the FTC explains, 
Um, many of these rules, I mean, basically the, the FTC's renewed focus on rulemaking and many of these specific rules are a specific response to what the FTC ter terms change circumstances, including the Supreme Court's AMG ruling and the FTC's what, uh, elimination, as it says, of, quote, bureaucratic steps in its own rulemaking procedures. And as Aaron noted, when the FTC enforces a rule, which is why it's important, this is so important to the FTC, it can seek redress for consumers or civil penalties for violations. And this authority is unaffected by the ruling in AMG. So this is very important authority that the FTC wants to develop. Um, in addition to those new rules, there's almost 20, as I said, existing rules that the FTC is going to be reviewing and possibly amending. And that includes some really significant rules like business opportunity, COPPA, the HSR rules, uh, the endorsement guides, the negative option rule, the telemarketing sales rule. It's reviving the care labeling rule, which the uh, previous commission had said it was going to phase out. Um, and and um, it's also considering uh, breach notification requirements for the safeguards rule. So as I said, there was ferocious dissents from uh, Phillips and, and, and Wilson who believe um, it, that the FTC is recasting itself as a, quote, mini Congress without any of the accountability that comes with it uh, and predicts that this will not end well for anybody. And of course, this announcement raises a lot of additional questions, um, um, such as, um, will the FTC get its fifth commissioner, which is needed to break the tie at the commission to actually make these rules happen? Um, as uh, I think many listeners know, uh, the fifth commissioner that would give Chairman Khan her, her majority is still held up in uh, Senate wrangling. And while uh, it's believed he will probably uh, make it through, it's going to be delayed uh, likely uh, until early next year. So we do now know what the FTC is planning and it's probably planning some other things as well. It'll be interesting to see though, Jessica, whether the agency is able to pursue this ambitious agenda, even with a fifth commissioner, with the staff it has today, um, Congress, of course, has the, the House has proposed considerably more funding and more staff for the FTC, but it remains to be seen whether um, that will um, end up in the, in the final budget in 2022. But I think even if that materializes, we have to recognize that any one of these rulemakings would be ambitious. Uh, adding staff always takes time to integrate and absorb and ramp up. Um, and so I think that the agenda sets out a, a pretty lengthy road that if, if followed would keep everyone busy and, and on their toes for a number of years. Excellent point. Yes, uh, this is a remarkably ambitious agenda that suggests they're counting on that additional staff before they have it. Thank you, Laura, Aaron, and Jessica for your thoughts on the FTC past, present, and future.